Good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. Hello out there. Well, um, I'm, I'm really thankful that Neil said what he said there. I can have as much time as I like, apparently, up here, which is just brilliant. Do you remember those days where I could preach for an hour sometimes at Croydon Jubilee? And many of you are probably thinking, thank goodness those days are gone. And I have great news for you today, because when John Cleveley a few weeks ago asked me to be a part of this series, I knew immediately what I was going to preach on, because it's a topic, something which I've carried with me. It's been a hobby horse of mine for probably 12 years or so now. And uh, back in 2010, August 2010, we used to live in China, and we were back, and Paul Barrett asked me to preach at Wolsey Chapel. You know, when we used to meet in the summer times, in August, we used to meet over there. And I spoke a sermon there from the same passage which I'm doing today, and I've completely rewritten it, not that I expect any of you to remember what I said 10 years ago. But you know, when I write uh, sermon notes, I write them out in full. I have a full script, and I go roughly by number of pages. And normally, you're getting a four to a four and a half page sermon. Back then, it was seven and a half to eight pages. Can you? Uh... And the good news for you today is because Beulah have more stringent time requirements than we do, we are down to just over three pages this morning from when I get going. So although I may have all the time I need, that time is not very long, thankfully. Right, so I'm going to be preaching today from Romans 15, 1 to 7, which will come up later on. They don't need to come up now. But if you've got a Bible, you may find it useful to make reference to it uh, when I get started on that passage. I read Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech the other day. And I'm ashamed to say that until then, I had never actually read or heard that speech before. But it's a famous speech, a well-known speech, and it ends like this. I'm going to read the end of it to you. He lists uh, loads of places where he declares that freedom should ring. And he said, let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the stone mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Now, I stand here before you, and I'm a white Englishman, and I've not known the suffering from which that speech was made, and the suffering which made that speech necessary. But the end of that speech resonates with me, and I hope it resonates with you too, regardless of who you are or where you come from. It resonates with me, but I want to ask the question, has it come to pass? Has the day been speeded up when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing? Have we made progress? Are we heading towards that? And there may be much to say about that in relation to society in general, and I haven't got time to speak to that today, but I do have time to speak to it in the church. Because as far as I can tell, we've not made that much progress in the church. And progress will require a radical rethink of what we think church is. 
You know, when people at work find out I'm a Christian or in some other social setting where I'm meeting people for the first time, the question I dread being asked, the question I dread being asked is this, what sort of Christian are you? I hate it. I hate being asked that question. What sort of Christian are you? Which sort of church do you go to? I hate it because in answering that question, I have to admit that the church is bewilderingly divided. And to the uninitiated outside, it is bewildering that we have the situation we do with the number of churches and types of churches. Why is it that when I drive from New Addington down to Selsden on a Sunday morning, I drive past at least three churches, probably more, on the way here? What's wrong with those churches? Are they not Christians? Are they not good enough? Are they not my brother's and sisters in Christ. And does the Bible have anything to say about this? Well, of course, I believe it does. Otherwise, I wouldn't be stood here preaching this message this morning. And so we will read from Romans 15. If you could bring it up, please, Derek. Thank you. We'll be starting at verse 1, going through to verse 7. And Paul, the apostle, and he's writing to the church in Rome, packs an enormous amount. We could pre- I could preach many sermons. When I spent an hour on this passage, it could have been a lot longer. There's a lot in here. But what I want you to see is that if you pay attention and if you listen carefully, you'll hear how the end of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech echoes these words of Paul. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That's a really strong statement. It's not a request. It's not a, it would be nice if. It's an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his own good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Did you hear it? Did you get the connection between what I started with at the end of that speech and what Paul is writing here? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had to write these words to the church in Rome because they were not in harmony. It was divided between Jew and Gentile for historical reasons that I don't have time to go into this morning, but some of you may remember some time ago. When did we start our Roman series? Was it about a year ago? About a year ago, I preached, and you remember I got about half of you to leave and go out into the coffee shop, and half remained in here, and I told a couple of jokes, and it was like an enacted parable of what was going on in the Roman church, the division which had been um, thrust upon them and which they were then living with the effects of afterwards. And that's why if you read Romans, the book of Romans, so much of it is about dealing with the relationship, which is a racial relationship between Jews and Gentiles, between the struggle of one race thinking itself better or more worthy 
than the other. And Paul's solution in Romans to that racial difference, that cultural difference, where there is this conflict over who has primacy over receiving the promises of God. There's a conflict over what you can eat, what you can't eat, which doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but back then was enormous for them. Conflict over what it means to be a legitimate member of God's people, over their relationship with Abraham, the one who received the covenant from God. Paul's solution to this problem, to these conflicts, is a very strange solution. A solution that is phenomenally simple, yet church history shows again and again is rarely worked out. And a solution that is so radical that were we to actually put it into practice, it would shake us to our very core in our complacency. And that solution is this, it's what he ends with, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And you may go, what? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you? Is that it? But then has Christ welcomed you, or me, on the basis of your gender, on the basis of your ethnicity, on the basis of your education, or of your wealth, or of your diet, or of your relationship status, or of your age, or of your doctrine, or of your clothing? of your musical preference, of your eloquence, of your wisdom, of your mental capacity, of your occupation, or the thousand and one other ways in which we categorise and label people, has Christ welcomed any of us on the basis of any of these things? Thank you that I didn't have to, (laughs) that the answer came. No, Christ has not welcomed us on the basis of any of those things. And therefore, is there any basis for me or you to not have fellowship with a fellow human being whom Christ has welcomed? And the answer is no, there is not. If Christ has welcomed them, I have an obligation to welcome them. And then you might say, well, that raises the question, if that's true, why is the church so divided? Why is that question so easily asked of me? Colleagues at work who know nothing practically of Christianity, but they do know this. There's lots of different types of Christians, and they all seem to disagree with each other. I want to know which kind you are. Something has happened between the time when Paul wrote this letter, when the question, what sort of Christian are you, was a meaningless question. There was only one type of Christian then. There's only one church in Rome. Something's happened between now, uh, then and now. When in Croydon, there are hundreds of churches. And I'd suggest that while there may be 500 years of good historical reasons why the church in Croydon and elsewhere has become so splintered. One theological reason is that what's spoken of in this passage and frequently elsewhere in the New Testament has faded from our view, and we don't give it that much importance. This gospel vision of Paul and of the other New Testament writers and the Old Testament prophets has faded. We just read this. It was in verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther King Jr., I would contend, understood the spirit of these verses in his dream of that day when, as he said, all of God's people will be able to join hands and sing. Joining hands is not very popular at the moment. But they're all becoming a day when we will join hands and sing. And he wanted that day sped up. 
You see, as I alluded to above, Paul was not writing to a congregation. He's not writing to one church of many in Rome. He's writing to the church in Rome, all of the Christians in Rome. And he wasn't addressing people who had chosen to be together because they liked each other or they had the same musical style or preferences or they liked the preaching or the building or whatever it was. He was addressing a people who had been put together in the same way that siblings in a family are put together by virtue of being coming from the same parents, belonging to the same family. And the power of the gospel was not going to be displayed amongst people who are all like each other because anybody can do that. The world does it every day. It's easy when everyone is like each other and likes one another. But the power of the gospel is going to be displayed by people who in the world's eyes should not get along with each other, but they do. And that is an enormous task. It's very easy to say and it's difficult to do. And Paul knew it was an enormous task, which is why he labours the point that it takes endurance and it takes encouragement to see this come to pass. Twice he says it, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's talking about the Old Testament, the promises of God written down. They are there for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of those scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should be normal that in a properly functioning and healthy church, there are times when you want to leave. And it should be normal that at times you feel uncomfortable. Not all of the time, but times. Times when you are not getting what you want. Because this is a normal dynamic of a family, of how we work out how to live with one another. Even in a marriage. And that's why we say relationships take work. They take work. You have to invest in them. At times you have to work things out and it takes time and you have to hang on in there. For that relationship. You endure. And you endure. To endure, you need to be encouraged because you need that hope of what you understand it is that you are enduring for. That's what makes the endurance worthwhile. You endure for the sake of a destination you want to get to because it's worth it. And the encouragement is the stoking of that vision of where you want to get to. You keep going to put one step in front of the other because the vision of your destination sustains you through the hardship. And that's what you feel, I think, when I, well, I felt it anyway, if you read Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, because he's painting a vision, a picture of where we want to get to, where he wanted to get to. And I read some of that at the end of that speech, but he made it. That's why the speech was made, because the road to that destination is hard and it's difficult. And you're going to need to be encouraged to get there, and you're going to need to endure to get there. The road ahead to freedom is hard, but it's to speed up that day. When all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in their freedom. And that's a vision which even I, as a white man who have probably largely been untouched by what he was talking about, I've never known slavery or racism, but I want to be a part of that vision and a part of arriving at that destination which he articulated. And that's what Paul has been doing in this letter to the church in Rome painting a vision of what it means to be 
God's people, to be a part of God's people who live in harmony with one another and with one voice, give glory to God. And the hope, the vision, if you like, is this. We could spend forever expounding it. But in the beginning, God made mankind. And there was harmony between man and woman and between mankind and between God. And that was torn asunder by sin and the fruit of that disharmony. Murder, adultery, theft, loneliness, the scattering, war, racism, these things which we experience up to today is played out again and again and again throughout human history. And the Old Testament is a great example of seeing that being played out. Does not hold back from that reality. But in the aftermath of the greatest scattering which comes in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, God scatters the peoples of the earth in judgment. They are scattered, separated, divided. And then after that, the next thing that happens is Genesis chapter 12, where God chooses a man called Abraham, who later becomes Abraham. And God speaks a promise to him in that chapter, which is repeatedly, uh, repeated frequently thereafter. And God says this to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's an undoing of the scattering which has been delivered in judgment in the previous chapter. And that's what Paul is writing in the great tradition of seeing those promises fulfilled. You track it through the Old Testament, enters into the new. That promise to heal mankind. And so those scriptures, the Old Testament, which Paul says are the means by which we understand that hope and we are encouraged as I say, trace the fulfillment of this promise from the beginning to the end, where we get to the book of Revelation. And what I'm about to read is actually written down twice, both in chapter 5, verse 9, and I'm going to read it from chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, where John sees this. Sorry, it's probably not going to come up on the screen. You'll have to listen carefully. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With one voice they cry and give glory to God. And I'm so thankful that Bernard chose that song because we hadn't spoken about this at all. That's a God thing that that came in there. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and it is peoples from every tribe, nation, language, tribe, together, with one voice, giving glory to God. That is the hope. That's the hope which is we are headed towards. That's the destination. Peace between mankind and God, and peace between human being and human being. This is the narrative arc of the scriptures, centered now for us on the cross of Christ, where the greatest reversal was made. Christ did not come to please himself, but the reproaches which were meant to fall on you and meant to fall on me fell on him, and he welcomed us. Dirty, stinking, filthy us. And it brings glory to God because nothing else can do it. Nothing else can do it. In our present, I wrote present crisis. I should have written present crises. There are many which we are travelling through at the moment. I see no solutions, really. Left and right are at war with one another. Forget Brexit. I mean, the UK is sort of doing a very good impression of just falling apart itself together as there are various internal struggles that we have. Identity politics, by definition, is alienating. There are new fundamentalisms on the rise about what it is acceptable and not acceptable to think or say or do. 
Tribalism has not gone anywhere, it's still here. And so now, just as it has been in every age beforehand, now is the time for the church, for this generation of Christians to dig deep and to proactively take our place in that great story which the Bible gives us such a run-up to, the centre of, and we are now looking and running towards the finishing line which I just read briefly from in the chapter of Revelation. To take our place in this great story of God working out the reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel and to gather together into one that which had been scattered and separated. Now is the time to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us. I'm very grateful for what has been done in Croydon over the years in terms of church unity. It's an important work, a necessary work, a good work, but it's a work which has not gone far enough. It's a work which has fallen short of where we need to get to. It's not enough. There needs to be an end to the fracturing of the church, an end to the status quo, an end to the complacency with which we believe God may want us to plant this church or that or make this church move or that. The vision needs to be bigger than that because the glory of God is at stake here. I am embarrassed, I am really embarrassed when I'm asked that question, what sort of Christian are you? It makes my heart sink. What sort of church do I belong to? Because it doesn't glorify God never to answer that question. It just draws attention to how small-minded we can be, calls into question whether the power of God is really at work among us. It doesn't cohere with the claims of the gospel. And so that's why anything which moves us towards, forces us to, pushes us towards, encourages us to work more closely together, to live more closely with other brothers and sisters in Christ who don't belong to our particular expression. You know, this is the reality. We can't have all of the Christians of Croydon meeting together. It's just not a practical thing. We understand that there will be smaller gatherings. Nevertheless, we have to have a deep, meaningful relationship and connection with them such that people don't say, well, you're over there and you're over there and you appear to be completely at loggerheads with one another or, or not related to each other at all. No, we belong to the actual same family. But to do that will require much endurance and encouragement, as well as many other things, not least humility. When we have problems in the church, the world's solution is obvious. It's the same solution you have when, there are, when problems arise in many situations. You just divorce. You just separate and go your separate ways. When Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome can't agree on what to eat or how to live and if that's such a big deal then the solution is obvious the jewish ones can go over here and the gentile ones can go over here and you can call each other brothers and sisters from your separate buildings and your separate congregations but there's no hope in that that's just carrying on the same divisions that exist in society anyway just papering over them and god does not countenance that solution this theme you know i've chosen these verses and some people would say they're fairly obscure verses we don't preach on this very often but you can go to any letter you go to multiple places. I know what Trevor Payne is preaching on next week. It's another th a very obvious place to go where unity, all things being brought under the feast, feet of Christ, is just core to the fulfillment of the gospel and God's work in our present age. And almost every letter in the New Testament is written to a church which is struggling over something in division, and never once is it countenanced, why don't you separate, make peace, and just and go your separate ways, kind of live parallel lives alongside each other. No, the solution is always you are one in Christ, you come together. 
God doesn't countenance any other solution and he leaves us with this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you, Jew and Gentile, black and white, Protestant and Catholic, may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, we want to make much of the cross of Christ and what it has achieved cosmically for the creation, for mankind, in history and in the future. And that great end to which we are being carried along by being entrained in his story, Jesus' story, of arriving before the throne of God as people wearing clothes from all different places around the globe throughout history, together with one voice declaring that salvation belongs to the, our Lord, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And Father, we look around now and we are disheartened in some ways because that is so splintered and fractured. And we have spent so much time arguing and disagreeing over those who we have so much in common with, who are brothers and sisters. That we pray that there would be a change wrought in our time, a change brought about in our generation, in our location, in our place, where there will be an upheaval which calls us to come together, where the scattering is reversed. And those of us who call ourselves Christians who are called by him and who are united with him in his cross and in his resurrection will express that in the way that we live out our lives, in the way that we live out our community, in the face of a watching world which doesn't know what to do. We pray that you would bring that about in our time, that we would see the, the green shoots of that happening, and that you would give us strength to endure, and that you would give us vision to be encouraged towards that destination, that great vision which you have given us. Strengthen us for this walk, we pray. Strengthen us and be with us and give us much love and humility that we would welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Do it, we pray, in Jesus' name.